Kaylin and I were talking uh, just a moment ago, and it's kind of funny. You know, when we when we used to live in Tennessee, uh, allergies never bothered me not one bit. I lived there multiple years, and I never had any trouble whatsoever. And then we moved away, and every time we travel back, it's like Tennessee slaps us in the face for leaving by giving me a face full of allergies every time we, we go there and come back. So if you would, just bear with me uh, this evening, uh, this afternoon, as I struggle to find my voice and the, and the energy to, uh, to, to do this. But I'm certainly grateful that you're here with a, back with another opportunity that we have uh, to worship our Father in heaven. It's amazing to me that no matter how many times I read through uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul, no matter how many times uh, I'm privileged to just to sit at his feet figuratively and and to, to study the things that he wrote, I, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at how rich his writings are and how in-depth uh, his writings are. And I'm convinced that uh, we could preach for, I don't know, maybe an entire year on the book of Philippians and not run out of things to talk about because of how specifically encouraging uh, the book of Philippians is. It's one of my favorite epistles to read and to study uh, because it is one that I think is extremely relatable to us in that uh, when Paul was writing this particular epistle, he was doing so from a Roman uh, prison cell. It's one of what we, we call one of his prison epistles. And so to read a book like the book of Philippians and to see how encouraging it is, uh, it's truly remarkable when you think about the, uh, the situation that Paul found himself as an author um, who was writing that particular letter. When we think about Paul, we understand Paul to be one uh, who was a great pillar of faith, one whose lives, uh, whose life we are to imitate. First Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, he tells Tells us that, and certainly you and I would do well to study his writings on a daily basis. When you and I look at the context, specifically this afternoon of chapter three, and I preached on a set of verses from Philippians chapter three uh, back in January, we're going to look at a different set of verses this afternoon. But if you recall earlier in that chapter, the Apostle Paul very much pulls from his past. He very much goes back into the way that he used to live his life. But from that, he draws numerous amounts of lessons for us uh, that we can certainly apply into our lives. You remember there in verse five, he starts off by talking about uh, his rich and steep history in the Jewish culture and how that was a very uh, big part of who he was. He was a very prominent Jewish character in that time. Many people knew who he was. Verse six, he talks about his zeal, his fire, his passion in persecuting the Lord's church and how that's what he thought he was supposed to be doing. He thought that he was doing that which God would have him to do. But then as you continue reading on, he talks about how though at a time, all of those things meant so much to him, didn't they? That was where all of his personal worth and what he thought was, was, was going to mean so much to him, the pomp, the fame, the status, all of those things were so important to him until he found Jesus Christ. And in fact, if you continue reading, he talks about how now all of it is a loss for the cause of Jesus Christ, how he was no longer dependent upon those things. He was no longer dependent upon his, Jew, his Jewish history or the Jewish culture because he had found a certain freedom within Jesus Christ. That freedom encompassed the way that he lived his life, and it allowed him to look upward when at a time earlier in his life he was unable to do so. That's verses 12, 13, and verse 14. And you pick up in verse 15, and it's interesting the wording that the Apostle Paul uses there when he says, therefore, let us... Therefore, let us, because of everything Paul says, I have just said about me. In fact, if you look at verses 4 all the way through verse 14, 11 different times Paul uses a personal pronoun. Paul has been so focused on himself as an individual, but he suddenly changes his language. He suddenly changes his focus, and he begins to talk to these Philippian brethren, to this church here at Philippi as an entire congregation. And he tells them that this focus that he now had in his life 
was the same focus that he wanted them to have as they were living their lives as well. The confidence that Paul has in his teachings and specifically in what he writes here in chapter 3, it just seeps off the pages as you and I study this particular passage. What is he telling them? Paul says essentially this, if you are someone who is mature enough, if you are someone who is spiritually mature enough, then you are going to have this same kind of attitude that he himself had while he was living on this earth. And if there was anything different, Paul says God will reveal it to you. That's the confidence in the message that Paul was preaching and that he was speaking, that if there was anything that different that God wanted them to hear, if there was a different attitude that God wanted them to possess, that God was going to reveal it to them. Paul wasn't cocky in the way that he did this, was he? He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't egotistical. He wasn't asserting his apostolic authority. He had done that in previous passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, just to name a couple of them. But Paul was gentle. Paul was calm. Paul was expressing his confidence in the message that God had given to him. And in fact, he had so much confidence that in the very next verse, he tells them to continue living by the standard that they have already been living by, to be united spiritually, to be focusing on their eternal reward, and to not be distracted by the pleasures of this world. And I want to look at this afternoon for just a couple of moments, verses 17 through verse 21. And when you and I look at this passage of verses, it's really, it's really all about seeing things, I guess we might say, from both ends of the spectrum. And I can't really describe it other than, other than by saying this, that what Paul is talking about here is the idea of you and I being earth-based but heaven-bound. The idea that you and I are earth-based but heaven-bound. And really, it is, is that not one of the greatest challenges that you and I face while living on this earth, while living here in this world that God has created, living on this earth, and yet making sure that you and I are focused on our eternal goal, making sure that you and I are focused with heaven as our home because it is so easy to get distracted by the things that this world has to offer that will, quote-unquote, make us more happy, more fulfilled than we would otherwise It's hard to do, isn't it? What Jesus said in John chapter 17, verses 11 and verse 16 in that prayer that he offered. Joey mentioned this earlier. The idea that you and I are to be in the world and not of the world. There is a constant tension between the living here and now and the thereafter. That's why reading from the Apostle Paul is so beneficial. That's why reading from the things that he wrote specifically to the church at Philippi is so beneficial for each of us because he understood that while he was here on this earth, His focus was to be on heaven above. Three things I want to pull from this particular passage of Scripture, three things that we can emulate in our lives, things that I think are very beneficial for us. Here's number one. When you look at verse 17, Paul talks about here that there is a pattern for us to acknowledge. Notice what he says here, beginning of verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. I think back to a couple of verses that we briefly talked about already, how Paul was showcasing his confidence, not only in his particular walk of life, but in this message that he was delivering to these people. He says, look, join in and follow my example. Join in and live the life that I have personally been living. Again, Paul's not being egotistical, is he? He's not being arrogant or prideful. He is not thinking that he's better than everyone else. In fact, we know this because you back up a couple of verses and you look at what he says in verse 12. How does he begin that section of of scriptures? Not that I have already attained. 
or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Two different times, Paul mentions the idea that he has not yet grasped his end goal. He hasn't yet arrived at his destination. There were still things that he needed to do while he was here on this earth. I have not already attained. I have not perfected. He says, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Paul was telling him there was more coming. There was more that needed to be done. We mentioned already a moment ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, where Paul said, imitate me. But you notice Paul doesn't leave it at that, does he? Paul continues on, and what does he say? As I imitate Christ. Christ was Paul's whole life. There was nothing else that was more important to him than making sure that he was living for his Lord and Savior. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4, what did he tell the Colossian brethren? He said, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He was putting the past behind him. He was pressing forward again. That's verses 12 through 14. And so when you look at verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul is admonishing his readers and his students to essentially have the same disposition of mind that he had. In other words, he's saying, he's saying, imitate this mindset that I have, and then you will be able to have your heavenly reward. Paul certainly was able to back up what he was saying when he said, follow my example. But notice he doesn't stop there. Not only look to me, Paul says, but he says, note or observe or acknowledge Others who have walked in the same pattern as well. When you look at that Greek word note in the New American Standard, it's the word observe. It paints for us this picture of a runner, someone who sees this finish line that is before him, and he is fixating his eyes on that goal. He is not allowing anything to come into his vision, but he is staying undistracted, and he is looking solely at where it is that he needs to go. He says, look, for you, brethren, fixate your eyes on myself and those around you. Make that your goal, to look at our pattern of life and to pattern yourselves after that, to imitate that. And what a pattern certainly that is for us to follow as well. Notice number two, the second thing that Paul mentions here, he talks about not only is there a pattern that they need to need to acknowledge, but he flips the coin. He says, there's people you need to look at, but then he also says, there's people that you need to avoid. Notice what he says in verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. I've heard it said this way before, that for every good example, there are many bad examples. Paul has just gotten through explaining to these Philippian brethren that there are individuals that he wants them to look at, that there are people that he wants them to acknowledge their pattern of life and to live just like them, people to whom they should cling ever so closely. But he flips the coin and he says, I have to also issue you a warning. I have to also tell you that there are going to be some people that you don't need to do that with. There are going to be some people that you need to avoid in the way that you live your life in the same way that a parent worries about their children and the influences that they are going to be influenced by as they are living their life in this world. That's the exact same mindset that Paul has here. Paul loves these Philippian brethren. They are near and dear to his heart. And so he says, look, here are some examples that you are to follow, but here are also some people that you need to avoid. And if you and I are to keep this in context, we can go all the way back to the beginning of this chapter, can't we? You look there in verse 2 to find out who the culprits are. Who is he telling them that they need to avoid? He's telling them 
avoid the Judaizing teachers. They were the ones who were the enemies of the cross of Christ here in chapter chapter 3. Notice what he says uh, going into a different book in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, where he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Their end was going to be destruction because they were seeking to be justified by the law. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Paul goes on to talk about these are people, he describes them as their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame. They were boasting about the law. They were boasting about their adherence to it, and he wraps it all up by saying people who live their lives like this, people who focus on all of the wrong things are individuals who have set their mind on earthly things. Interestingly enough, Paul writes in the complete opposite way of that, doesn't he? Back in Colossians chapter 3 that we read just a moment ago, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Instead of their minds being heaven-bound, they were all earth-based. They were the opposite of what Paul was trying to tell them. When we think about someone who lives their lives in direct conflict with the will of Almighty God, their mindset is that of someone who simply looks at God's commands and yet thinks them to be unimportant. They look at Almighty God, they look at His Word, and they see it just perhaps as a book of mere guidelines, maybe just suggestions. Or perhaps there are people who see the Bible as a book of fables, as fiction, and as nothing more than that. Paul calls these people enemies of the cross of Christ. When we think about the cross, you and I understand the cross to be a symbol of a death to self and to sin, a death of a lifestyle that is lived for self and lived for the world. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You and I have to understand that Christianity is all about centering our lives around Jesus Christ and his purpose while he was here on this earth. When you and I as New Testament Christians do not focus on him, when we don't focus our lives on what Christ has done for us, the only alternative is to be focused on yourself. There's only one of two options here. You can't ride the fence when it comes to something like this. When I turn my back on God, I am already living my life for self, and I have already become an enemy of the cross. I find it interesting the way Paul reacts to them. When you read there in verse 18, the Bible describes, or rather he describes himself as someone who is weeping. He's distraught. He is saddened. He is someone who is full of sorrow. The fact that these false teachers, these enemies of the cross even existed, and that they were a serious threat to his beloved Philippian brethren. It didn't do his heart any good, and I suppose in some ways it broke his heart. These were people that he cared for. You can see that all throughout the book. Charles Swindle said, describing this particular situation, he said, these individuals were destined for hell and driven by their appetites. They remained dedicated to this world. This is the kind of people that they were dealing with. This is the kind of people that Paul was trying to protect these Philippian brethren from. He wanted them to remain faithful And so he tells them, you need to avoid these people. He says, there's a pattern that you need to acknowledge. You need to look at certain individuals and do all that you can to follow after them. But then he says, let's flip the coin and talk about a people that you need to avoid, people that you need to get rid of in your lives. And certainly we can all draw lessons from that. But then number three, as you look at the third thing, Paul says, there's also a purpose that you and I have to achieve. Notice beginning in verse 20. 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. I think Paul summed it up well. When you go back to Colossians chapter 3, and we won't read it, we've already read it once before, but in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and verse 2, where he talks about the mindset of you and I as New Testament Christians, how we are to seek those things which are above, to set our minds on things above and to not focus or worry about this world and what it offers. You want to talk about being someone who is heaven bound while you are earth based. J.B. Phillips said this. He said, give your heart to the heavenly things and not to the passing things of this earth. Paul told the brethren, this is exactly what you need to do. You need to set your heart in a heavenly place. That's why he said in verse 20, he said, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our home is. That's where we reside. That is where our place is supposed to be, not here on this earth. That's where they belong, and Paul's reminding them for that, of that. The same is for us as New Testament Christians and how we are not citizens of this world, but rather we are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of a place that has rid itself of any death and decay and disappointment that you and I might face on this earth, those things are not going to be there in heaven. It's interesting that James Moffat's translation of this particular verse is that he talks about how they are, what he says, a particular colony of heaven. And I think it's interesting that he says this because this imagery makes sense to the Philippian brethren because Philippi was a Roman colony. And Roman colonies had certain privileges, but they also had certain responsibilities. Those citizens that were there had an allegiance. They had a loyalty to Rome and to the emperor. They were governed by Rome and thus their conduct was lived out in such a way that Rome wanted them to live. And so when we think about us as Christians, it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? We have to realize that when it comes to this world, you and I don't belong here. We are resident aliens. The idea that we belong to another country. We belong to a different country. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13, the writer said they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. First Peter 2 and verse 11, beloved, he says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, look, you and I want our names written in the book of life, not in the book of the world. And yet too many people want to have both, don't they? Too many people want to have their citizenship in heaven. They want to say that they belong to a different country, and yet they live their lives as if they are dedicated and submitting themselves to this world. But it doesn't work that way. It never has, it never will, because this is all temporary. It's a temporary address that you and I have right here, and one day it's going to be destroyed. Just like those Roman colonies, you and I have certain privileges and benefits, but we also have certain responsibilities. Because you and I understand that our allegiance is to our Father. Our allegiance is to Him and to do His will as He commands, just as the Roman Emperor commanded His own people as well. Notice as Paul continues, he tells us the kind of attitude that we need to have and how it is an attitude of what he says is an attitude of eagerness. The idea of an expectation, one for which we cannot wait for something to happen. You and I as New Testament Christians, we are ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. At least I hope that you and I are. You and I don't know when it's going to happen, Matthew 24, verse 36, but we eagerly expect it and we eagerly await it. We hope for it. We long for it. We have faith that it is going to happen. We understand that God, the promise keeper, 
Or rather, the promise maker is going to be God, the promise keeper, and that one day we're going to stand before God, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, and we're going to be judged according to the things that we've done. However, one of the most amazing things, and Paul alludes to this here in this last verse, is what is going to happen. How our bodies, he says, are going to be changed right now. You and I understand we are subject to decay, to disease, to discomfort, to death. We decline as we grow older. We grow tired. We grow weary. In fact, it's often been said this way, that we are locked by limitations, we are fettered by frailty, pursued by pain, and we are doomed to die. It kind of darkly sums up this life, doesn't it? And how there really is no hope, is there, to just stay in this world? There really is no hope for any of us to just simply put all of our stock and worth in what this world has to offer us, to just stay here and live this life with not looking towards or forward to something better that is going to happen, how empty and how hopeless to live life that way. Because you and I know 100% without a shadow of a doubt that there is something that is so much greater that is going to come. What are we going to look like? We don't know, do we? How is it going to take place? We don't really know. When is it going to take place? We don't know. But none of those things really matter that much, do they? The details don't really matter when it comes to this particular promise that God has made. What does matter, though, is that because God said it, it is going to happen and that Jesus Christ is going to come back. We can have such great faith because of what John said in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, when he said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do I understand exactly what is going to happen? Do I understand exactly what is going to take place and what I'm going to look like? Absolutely not. Charles Erdman said this in one of his commentaries. He said, these words are not enough to satisfy our curiosity. He said, but they may suffice to inspire comfort and to stimulate hope. I love the writings of the Apostle Paul. I love studying. I love reading. I love um, doing all that I can to glean from his particular epistles because Paul gives us so much hope. Paul gives us so much joy. He gives us so much peace in our lives as individuals who live here on this earth, perhaps dealing with circumstances and situations that none of us want to have to go through. Paul endured the same thing. In fact, Paul endured things far worse than you and I will probably ever have to deal with. And yet Paul was someone that while he was earth-based, certainly he was heaven-bound in that he focused on heaven. He focused on what his goal was and he focused on trying to get as many people there with him as he could. Uh, perhaps you're here this, this afternoon and maybe you are someone who is not yet a Christian. Maybe you are not heaven bound as someone who is not yet a part of the Lord's church, a New Testament Christian. Know that we can change that. You can change that this afternoon. You can come forward repenting of your sins, confessing Christ's precious name. We can baptize you into water, that water representing the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And you can go on your way rejoicing, knowing that you have submitted your life to him and that while you are here, on this earth, you can be heaven bound. Or maybe you're here, perhaps as a New Testament Christian, but maybe your life is not what it should be. Maybe you've lost focus of heaven. Maybe heaven, or maybe you realize that you're not heaven bound because of the way that you've been living your life, but you want to repent of those things, turn back to him, know that we will pray for you, we will encourage you, we'll forgive you, God will forgive you, and we'll do all that we can to help you on your way. If you have a need this afternoon, won't you come? It's together we stand and as we sing. Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.